Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. I am overjoyed to have Ewan Relly on the show with us. He is a transplanted Brit here in New York. He is the founder and managing partner of BDA Advisors. They are an Asia-focused investment bank, but I thought it would be really interesting to have him on, not only for his international worldview, but for also his wide antenna, both in fashion and in politics generally. And I think his viewpoint on a lot of different things would be very interesting for the listenership. Ewan, welcome aboard. Well, Fraser, it's a pleasure to be here, and thank you so much for having me. Let's get to it with sort of the important questions, I suppose. We're right in the midst of an impeachment process. We've got an economy that doesn't know what it's doing, I would say. You've got strong stock market growth, but a lot of headwinds and challenges. What are you talking to your clients about in terms of an economic outlook? And what are you seeing globally that maybe we're missing here in the United States? That's a broad question. I think (laughs) people who have money are feeling relatively confident. I often remember a man who, when he told me this was a young man, he was called Jamie, he's still called Jamie Johnson. And he made a movie you might have seen called Born Rich about lots of young heirs and heiresses. And I think Ivanka Trump was one of the people featured in the movie. But Jamie Johnson told me, and this is 25 years ago, he told me, he said, we rich people, Ewan, he said, we love a recession because we're still rich and everything else gets cheaper. I've thought of that many, many times since then. When I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a capitalist, I want to make a living. I'm not consumed by wealth. I'm not consumed with getting rich, but I enjoy the trappings of making a good living. And I pay private school fees for my children. And I prefer the good things in life to the not good things in life. But clearly, we have a pretty serious issue globally at the moment, which is that rich people have had a good pandemic and strong, well-capitalized companies have had a good pandemic. On the whole, the developed world has had a good pandemic. I would say it's obviously shocking how many people have died in the US and, and the UK particularly. But overall, the world's great economies are getting stronger and are performing surprisingly well, surprisingly resilient. We're probably right at the peak or the worst point of the pandemic today. And yet stock markets look very, very healthy. We've got a pretty terrible political situation in the US. I would argue not great in the UK either. And yet stock markets look very healthy. You could argue it's a testament to the resilience of Western democracy and of Western capitalist economies. I often say there's no point in me giving really giving advice to my clients because my clients decide what they want to do and I help them do it. And I'm happy to collect a fee for helping them do it. But my clients are typically very, very optimistic. We work for private equity funds who have raised record amounts of capital, who are sitting on record amounts of dry powder. We work for big corporates who seem to have apparently unfettered access to cheap capital everywhere in the world. And of course, I know at the same time that small businesses are really struggling and restaurants and hotels are struggling. But you're unlucky enough to be on my mailing list, so you may have seen this, but we've just sold the Sundance Mountain Resort 
for Robert Redford. That's a ski resort which has had very few visitors over the last year, and yet we were able to help them achieve a very good exit at a very good price. And so I think capitalism is undiminished, undimmed and undiminished by this terrible pandemic. And the question is really going to be how do we keep society and the greater politics together and level somehow on the level? Because I think if politics gets much worse than it is today, then we're all going to have some knock-on problems, even those of us who are cosseted and economically comfortable. BDA in general advises clients, probably business owners, helping them achieve their goals. What does that mean exactly in the global sense? Are you helping people buy and sell companies, refinance, all of the above? A bit of all of that. Like most investment banks doing mergers and acquisitions advice, we prefer to be on the sell side. If you're working for a buyer, you can try your damnedest to buy a business and still um, not be successful. On the sell side, you know, if you've got a sensible owner who really wants to sell a business and will take whatever price the market offers, then by definition, you can normally get a deal done. Right. And your background, how did you get into this line of work? I went to university, had a classical British education. I went to Eton and Cambridge, not through really any skill of my own, just because I had an upper middle class dad, a spy pretending to be a diplomat. The British government was kind enough to pay the school fees, and my dad was well-connected enough to help me get onto the conveyor belt, which led to a classical British education. So I grew up in lots of different countries for the first 15 years of my life, thinking my dad was a diplomat for the next 10 years or so of my life, being shocked to try to process the fact that my dad was actually a spy. But I love traveling internationally, and so I took a job in a British investment bank when I left Cambridge. I worked for six years for a bank that doesn't really exist anymore, or at least the firm's called Schroders. It sold its investment banking business to Citibank soon after I left. Uh, nothing to do with me, I don't think. It still exists as a very successful fund manager, investment management company in the, listed on the UK London Stock Exchange. But I worked for six years for Schroders, two years each in London, New York, and Singapore, which was really just a fantastic start to a career. And six years in, I decided that, well, it didn't take me six years, but gradually over those six years, I decided investment banking is fun, but investment bankers take themselves too seriously. And it's populated by uh, rather grandiose, pompous people quite often, or it certainly was in, in those days. And I'd had this great exposure. I'd come to New York for a couple of years. Schroders had bought 50% stake in a securities firm called Wertheim Schroder, called Wertheim, then, then Wertheim Schroder, then Schroder Wertheim. I worked two years in New York, and I discovered an English accent is quite valuable in the US. And then I worked a couple of years in Singapore. I decided that Asia would be a big deal in the future. So I left Schroders after six years to set up my own company, where I thought we'd be try to provide good quality advice in a down-to-earth way, make some money, be based in New York, which is the most exciting city in the world, but also do business in Asia, which was the most promising series of markets that I could find. What was it like to make that leap, to go from, you know, I'd say probably a pretty stable situation at Schroeder's and to open your own firm? That must have been a combination of thrilling and scary and processing doubt and at the same time having the confidence to do it. What were your emotions riding through that leap off the ledge? I was in my late 20s. I was 28 years old at the time, something like that. And 28 seemed like a good time to take a leap. 
I didn't have any family yet to worry about, really. Yeah, it was exciting. It was an excuse to move back, really, from Singapore to New York. I was not super confident that it would be successful. Actually, I was fairly naive. I thought within three or four years, I'd be rich or broke. And the truth was considerably more prosaic. After three or four years, it seemed like we might be able to eke out a decent living and, and make the business work. I always say BDA was not a get-rich-quick scheme. I'm economically somewhat successful now, but it's uh, coming up for our 25th anniversary. It didn't happen overnight, and it required a tenacity, frankly, which I've surprised myself. I joke, but no one ever laughs because everyone thinks it's obvious that I have kind of uh, self-diagnosed, medium, high-functioning ADD. I have a, a short attention span, and I'm easily distracted. I've always got a new idea. And yet I've stuck at this job for 25 years. So I'm quite proud of myself for having done that. And I'm thankful to the men and women who've been my partners over that period, who've kept me on the straight and narrow and supported me and, and made it successful. But I set up the business in New York. We certainly couldn't have set it up, I don't think, in London in those days. I think in London, there was a kind of tall poppy syndrome. If you stuck your head above the parapet, people would think you were unbelievably arrogant. And I remember people saying, who the hell does this guy think he is setting up a rival to the investment banking firm he works for? And I was sort of actually quite British about it, rather apologetic and said, I just wanted to try and see if I could achieve something by myself. But actually in New York, you know, great testament to this country, despite its many imperfections. And I don't think America is perfect, but I do think America is the best country. United States of America is the best country in the world because when we came and started trying to do business here and to set up the business, we had to knock on a lot of doors to win clients. But lots of people said, you seem young and cocky and confident, but it, it sounds like a good idea. Maybe we should try you. There's a generosity of spirit. Part of the reason I was attracted to the US, apart from the fact that there remains a spurious credibility from speaking with an English accent here. The other reason that I like this country is because it was open, and an open and generous country, and an optimistic country, where particularly in New York, but actually all over the country, people seem to have the impression that if you were confident and ambitious and went for it, there's no reason why you shouldn't be successful. And actually, there are surprisingly few countries in the world, almost nowhere in the world, that I can think of, where that's the prevailing assumption that you have a chance to succeed if you just go for it. And that's an incredible mindset. And I'm not quite sure how the US developed that mindset, but it's definitely a mindset I'm still aware of in this country. And when I occasionally get emotional about the United States, by the way, I'm still a green card holder. I'm not a citizen yet, but I may change that before too long. But when I get emotional about politics in this country or about human rights issues or anything, and try not to sound too woke, but when I find myself getting emotional, it's because of everything this country has given me. And I feel very passionate to be an immigrant and very grateful for the opportunities that this country has afforded me. And I've had a hell of a lot of fun and built a happy life here. Yeah. And so I feel very, very practically and emotionally invested in the United States of America. It's a terrific story. And I think that more stories like that, I mean, we hear them sort of 
off the cuff, but to hear sort of the leap of faith to go from something comfortable to something not very comfortable and turn it into a success and turn it into a life. I hope people listen to this and really take it to heart because it's an important feature of this country. So you focus on Asia. You had some experience in Singapore. A lot of listeners that I have sort of have this broad notion of Asia and China, and there's gigantic opportunity, but we're separated by geography, a big pool of water, culture, and language. Help us think about the prospects for Asia and what you see as the opportunity and maybe the larger challenges in participating in that. The 800-pound gorilla is the relationship between China and the U.S. I first went to China backpacking, took a year off in between high school and university as an 18-year-old boy in 1986. And it was before the Tiananmen Square incident had happened. And China was a very different place to what it is today. China was a rather gray country full of people who seemed downtrodden, who wore the same kinds of dark blue and dark green cotton clothes, who rode bicycles because they couldn't afford cars, and who lived a pretty primitive life, basically, uh, including, for example, consumption. People would eat lots and lots of rice and not much protein because they didn't have access to much protein. And today, China is something very different. And for all the manifold failings of the Chinese government, and all the horrific human rights abuses by the Chinese government, China has been the most astonishing story of global transformation. And now walking down Nanjing Shilu in, well, I haven't been there since February, for obvious reasons, you can't travel at the moment, but, but walking down Nanjing Shilu or any of the main shopping streets in Shanghai today, you would think New York City or Los Angeles or Chicago are rather primitive backward places because... China has become the most astonishingly successful consumer market. People don't bother with credit cards. They pay in different ways with their telephone. And they live a life that in many ways is more service-oriented even than the U.S. The momentum of the Chinese economy is something that's been fascinating to watch for 30 years. And my hope is, despite the terrible elements of politics in China and the difficult relationship with China and the US that actually we will be able to repair that relationship and do business better together. Because I think that China represents, number one, an absolutely huge market opportunity for Western companies. And number two, that China can make stuff really well and cheaply and innovate in a way that's actually useful for U.S. consumers to be able to buy products cheaply from China and for U.S. companies to be able to buy intermediate components cheaply from China. So I think the trade war is unhealthy. Understand absolutely why it's so popular with both political parties in the U.S. today. I'm a congenital optimist and I'm hopeful that, that the two countries will find a way to coexist more healthily than they are at the moment. So that's the overweening challenge and, and opportunity, I would say. But beyond that, for example, we've done really, really well in Vietnam, which is underbanked. Vietnam, to some considerable extent, has been able to take advantage of China being closed to many investors. And there are all kinds of interesting cross flows. For example, the Koreans are a bit scared to invest in China at the moment, so they're investing aggressively in the Vietnam economy. 
when I say the Koreans, I mean Korean retail investors and Korean private equity firms and, and Korean pension funds. The Japanese and, and Koreans investing aggressively in Southeast Asia. I think there's great economic momentum across Asia. There's still the potential to manufacture cheaply, but you have this increasingly pretty well-educated, very young, healthy, ambitious population with lots of competition between Asian countries, which are really quite different to each other. Many, many countries in Asia, which are showing very exciting growth prospects over the next 50 years. And I think however you look at it, I'm afraid we've got to say that the 20th century belonged without a shadow of doubt to the US. But actually, this century is probably going to belong to Asia in some form or, or other. We see countries from India to Vietnam, to the Philippines, to Taiwan and Korea, all growing fast, all showing some very, very interesting characteristics of growth on a corporate level, but on a human public wealth level. And it's just an absolutely fascinating place to explore. As long as those countries can get the balance right in terms of regulation, putting in place sufficient regulation so that investors are protected, the rule of law, broadly speaking, exists. The growth momentum will be quite dramatic compared to what we can hope for in, in the U.S. over the coming years. What do you see as the big mistake that U.S. companies make when trying to understand Asia is too big a word for it, but specific countries within Asia? What do they assume that they get wrong, ultimately, when they're trying to do business there? There's a lot of ways you can trip up if you're operating as a company a long way from home. Most of the developing world has endemic corruption in some form or other. Let me talk about India for a bit. India, India, in theory, is a democracy. In theory, the legal system and the capital markets are based on Western models, particularly British models. And yet the bureaucracy is hopeless and there's terrible corruption. You know, I remember being told once by an Indian lawyer, look, the only way you can be successful in a particular situation we were facing, the only way we could be successful was by taking the, the company to court. And the only way we could do that successfully would be to bribe the judge. And even then it would take five to 10 years for the case to be resolved. And there would be no certainty that we would win even if we bribed the judge, which is a pretty bleak set of uh, facts to be presented with, quite apart from the fact that... Uh, yeah, what are you paid for? <laughs> there's something called the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act in the US, which means, right. you know, I can go to jail in the US for bribing a judge in India, so I'm not about to do that. When you say mistakes that companies make, look, I mean, it's very hard to get it right. And our advice often comes down to something rather trite, common sense type advice, which is pick the most reputable blue chip partners. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Use partners who can help you navigate, get good advice, hire good lawyers and accountants to help draft good contracts, keep your eye close to the ground, expect hiccups. But generally, it's about being prepared. If you're entering into a business venture in Asia, it often comes down to being prepared to pay a bit more or give up a bit more of the value to go into business with a partner who's going to charge you highly for being your partner, but can help you navigate the treacherous local business practices. So I think picking good partners is good advice. But as I say, Fraser, overall, the legal environments in some of these countries are becoming a little bit more straightforward. 
both in India and China, it's now possible for a foreign company to win a lawsuit, which probably wasn't really the case 20 years ago. So again, although returns may come down a bit, there's plenty of upside, plenty of reason for optimism, maybe fewer reasons to be terrified than there used to be in some of these emerging markets. So let's circle back to the U.S. We're coming off of probably a period of probably the most significant damage, certainly in my lifetime, politically speaking. And we're going to probably have at least another, certainly a week to digest that before President Biden comes in. How do you view the United States from a practical perspective? We've got moderate Democrat in office, 222 to 212 the House of Representatives and 50-50 at the Senate. In my world, I'm saying to people that it's not quite as much of an avalanche mandate as maybe you're hearing in the public and that a lot of legislative changes are going to be much more subtle and neutral than we're hearing. How are you digesting what we think the environment's going to be over the next, let's call it two years? I'll disclose my cards to you to some degree. I was never a Trump fan. I met Trump a few times. I didn't support his philosophy, should I say. Actually, some of his policies were fine. I'm a pretty centrist guy who's been, I feel like I've been pushed into the Democrat camp by Trumpism, really. Having said that, I try to maintain some perspective for lots of reasons. Number one, I have plenty of great friends and clients I respect very highly who are super enthusiastic about Trump until today, even some colleagues. And actually also, I would say there's a mixed picture around the world of Trump. So again, without getting too sidetracked, actually Trump had quite a lot of admirers in China because they saw him as a strong, action-oriented, take-no-prisoners, effective leader who saw off any opposition ruthlessly. That was interesting that I see myself as being kind of more liberal and I don't want to be seen as woke, but more woke, should I say, than than many people I might have expected to dislike Trump more than me in Asia. Having said that, I'm still a centrist guy. Look, I don't think Biden's the most exciting candidate that ever presented himself. I was worried at some points that, like John Kerry, he might disappoint as a candidate. But actually, I've been very highly impressed by him since he got the nomination. He may not be a great orator, he may have lost lost a yard of pace, as we say on the soccer pitch, but actually he's made rather wise decisions and he's been rather moderate on the whole, I would think, in terms of how he's reacted to an extraordinarily difficult predicament he's faced. And you might have expected him to blow his top, to lose his temper at any point over the last six weeks or so, and he hasn't. He's kept his powder dry and he's been sensible. He's appointed, on the whole, pretty sensible advisors to, you know, cabinet secretaries or assuming they they mostly will get approved by the Senate. He's going to have a sensible, fairly moderate cabinet. It will look to some extent like a continuation of the Obama administration, but it might be a bit more forward thinking and I hope a bit more pro-business in some ways. So I think that you're right. I'm a supporter of Biden's policies, but with the typical finance industry caveat, I don't want to pay huge taxes, please. Can we do all of those positive, socially positive things without a massive tax bill for business owners and business leaders, please? 
I'm prepared to pay some more taxes. I think I will pay some more taxes. He will be constrained a bit. I remember some people telling me this argument over the last few weeks. Oh, well, we hope that the Dems lose the Georgia Senate race because then that'll be good news for Biden because he won't be hamstrung by the left wing of his party and he'll be able to govern more easily from the center because he'll be forced to. I think it's sort of true anyway, to tell you the truth. I think he'll be able to get his guys, his men and women approved into positions of, you know, in the cabinet. But I also think he instinctively, I think he recognizes the need for a calmer, more moderate approach. I think instinctively he recognizes that actually there are some reasons why Trump's been so popular with some quite sizable parts of the US population. And I think he recognizes that he needs to try to bring both sides of the country back together, which will be a damned difficult job to pull off. But he's not going to do it by only listening to Elizabeth Warren and AOC. He's going to need to try and bring a broader coalition forward. I think he'll be constrained in tax hikes. I think he'll be constrained in, you know, reining in the energy industry too aggressively. I know he danced this rather delicate, sometimes inelegant dance over fracking, whether fracking would be allowed to continue or allowed, existing fracking would be allowed, but no new fracking. Certainly some questions about how it'll play out, but I think we can afford to be somewhat optimistic because I think he's being sensible. And I think, look, I'll praise the US again, wherever I go in the world and whoever I talk to in different countries in the world, people hold this country and the economy of the United States in very high esteem. And everybody around the world wants to watch the NBA and the NFL and Hollywood movies, and everybody wants to get the new iPhone, and so on and so forth. Everybody wants to drive a Tesla. There are many, many things that come out of the US, including soft cultural things and physical products and services, which are the admiration of the entire world. So I think there's every reason to be confident that the US economy will find global opportunities, I think will perform every bit as well under Biden as under Trump. And Fraser, I think that's why you see stock markets holding up so well, because investors were voting with our pocketbooks. We see what Biden is proposing, and we see how Biden is behaving, and we don't think there's too much reason to be dismayed. I would add on to that. I think that sort of the U.S. democracy example, if you sort of view Trump in the chaos that he sort of envisaged as, if you put it on the nuclear clock, it was sort of 15 minutes till midnight. And then as the riots in Congress came out, I'd say it got down to about 12. I think the system is durable. And I think in a sense, sometimes you have to go through these flame-tempered experiences to remember that. I think the stock market kind of understands that. I hope that the, the world understands that can be messy sometimes, but hopefully that's one of the object lessons going forward. We're going to wind down here a little bit. Have you got a couple of maybe themes or predictions that maybe they're off the wall or maybe they're things that people aren't thinking about that might be interesting? Yes, I do. But first of all, I want to say I agree with you 100%. I don't want to be all kumbaya about it, but the checks and balances worked. I hope we're not tested as solely and as rudely too much in the future in the way that we have been by Trumpism, but it worked. And, and this country has survived other hard times in the past. And again, I think actually there's a reason why people look to this country. We'll get through it. Maybe we've already got through it. On themes, 
look, I see in our business, I'm always trying to look at which sectors look promising, where we're getting interest. My least favorite phrase is the new normal, because I liked the old normal. And I don't think whatever is new is really normal yet. But there are some things which we've learned from this pandemic that will abide going forward. So when I think about how I want to position my business, I like healthcare, I like healthcare IT, I like e-commerce, I like distance learning, I like telehealth. I'm not unique. These are pretty obvious themes. But I think you know, tech-enabled everything is my general theme that impacts the way I try and speak to my kids, the way I encourage my kids to learn and behave. We better be tech savvy going forward. And we joked before this podcast, you and me, about the fact that we're, especially me, I'm middle-aged, you're approaching middle age or something. We're not as tech savvy as our kids are, but everything's going to be about tech going forward. And I think we have to learn how to recognize companies that are well positioned for an economy where everything is connected. And that's what I'm spending my time trying to understand now. How does the world work in a hyper-connected way going forward? Gosh, we could probably talk for hours, but I'm going to cut you off, but have you talk a little bit about your other passion, which is Arsenal football, and what do the prospects look like for the rest of the season? Any hope or where are you with them? I suppose I believe in God and I suppose I'm a Christian, but sometimes I feel like sports for some middle-aged men I hope that the Christians among your audience will forgive me for saying this, but it's like a rival religion in a way. I love this team, which I grew up watching. My dad used to go with his great uncle. I'd taken my children many times. I've got ex-girlfriends who became passionate Arsenal fans, and it's just something that I've done. It's a great, consistent theme through my life. I watch this football team play soccer once or twice a week, every week, most of the year. We have a fairly new manager, Mikel Arteta, who's a former player. He got off to a good start, then went through an absolutely terrible period and came pretty close to getting sacked and just in the nick of time started winning games again. We have some owners from Denver, Colorado, called the Cronky family, Stan Cronky, who was smart enough to marry a woman who was a Walmart heiress, and that was a, a really good decision on his part. They've been generally sensible owners and Arsenal is ways away from the top. But part of being a sports fan is to tolerate the long gaps in between success. And hope springs eternal that uh, within the next couple of years, we'll get back to the top of the Premier League. I'm a Washington football team, American football team fan, and our little dabble with the playoffs this year after years of being stuck in the desert, it was wonderful. I can empathize, I think. so. <laughs> well, at least our team has a name. And uh, right. we'll watch right. with great interest to see whether you figure that out. Exactly. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Fraser. This has been really fun, and I appreciate you uh, indulging me. Oh, well, thank you for coming on, Ewan, and we'll keep track of you. What's the best way to keep track of BDA and your comings and goings? I don't pay for a psychiatrist, so I tweet, and uh, I tweet <laughs> pretty compulsively. So you can follow me on Twitter at Ewan Relly. Or you can uh, go to our website if you really ever feel like you need some Asia-focused investment banking advice, www.bdapartners.com. BDA, which was originally Business Development Asia and is now just BDA Partners. Terrific. Ewan, thanks so much. I think I owe you dinner. So when real life reestablishes, please let's have dinner. Well, I'll buy the drinks and lose the arbitrage on that. <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice. 
author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.